The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Paula Khoury, is a therapist, yoga teacher, and somatic experiencing practitioner known for her nuance, compassion, and humor in addressing difficult topics such as stress, anxiety, and trauma. One of the founders of Off the Mat and Into the World, Hala teaches workshops on yoga, anxiety, trauma, resilience, and social justice. Her essay, Right Now We're All Dysregulated, appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Her new book, Peace from Anxiety, Get Grounded, Build Resilience, and Stay Connected Amidst the Chaos, has just been published. Hala Khoury, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. We're happy to talk with you. The book is really fascinating. And I want to start with something that I, I don't know if I've ever done it before, but certainly it's rare if I have. And that's to ask you about your childhood, because it seems like what happened to you when you were three, and you can tell us what that was, really shapes your experience in such a way that it, it seems to influence this book, not just because you wrote about it, but you know, psychically, spiritually. So tell us about, about your experience uh, in, in Lebanon. Yeah, well, when I was three years old, actually when I was two and a half, civil war broke out in Lebanon. And my parents you know, did the best they could to get us out. And there was a lot of violence. I remember, well, I don't remember this, but I'm told stories about hearing gunshots and bombs and my kid, my parents saying to me, oh, that's just fireworks. It's somebody's birthday. You know, I was two. Um, and my sister and I would often look at my parents and say, I hope there's no birthdays today. You know, so we were fairly protected, yet we knew what was going on. So my parents were bringing us to the land where the houses were made of chocolate. That's what they said to us about America. And we moved here when I was about three. Um, and I do often talk about how I think that my passion for trying to understand trauma, trying to understand social justice, and trying to understand the impact of collective trauma is rooted in that and root, is rooted in me coming from a region of the world so steeped with violence, so steeped in, with you know generations and generations of trauma. And it definitely has shaped my searching and my seeking in my life. I love the fact that they told you the houses were made of chocolate. Mm. You know, when when Jews came over here, they called America the Golden Medina. That basically the streets were paved with gold. Yeah. So 
that put them together and you'd have enough money with a brick of the street to buy all the chocolate you want. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that would that would be perfect. How do you think that childhood trauma, even though you may not be able to conjure up memories because you were so little and you have the stories that your your parents told you, are the stories enough to transmit that deeply rooted anxiety? No, I mean I think that, you know, Trauma lives in the body, not in the mind. So I don't have to consciously remember those things, but they're going to live in my being. Ironically, I actually don't think I carry anxiety from that experience because I was really protected. And I think that a lot of my work and or my faith that we can overcome difficulty, that we can build resilience actually comes from that. So even though that was an overwhelming event, which is the definition of trauma, when we're giving resource, given resources and support to deal with it, we're not necessarily traumatized by that event. So I actually don't think I was traumatized by that event. That is a very interesting distinction between experiencing a trauma and being traumatized. So we'll probably get to that because that's I have a sense that's really what the book is about, giving mm-hmm. you the tools to work through a trauma without being traumatized. Yeah. In your essay in the magazine, I just want to touch on that for a second. Mm-hmm. You give us this term dysregulated. And you juxtapose it with the term self-regulated. So unpack those for us. Define them. And how do we fall into the first and and more healthfully move into the second? Sure. Well, I'll start by defining self-regulation. And a simple definition of self-regulation is when we feel grounded, centered, and present in the moment. And this is very much an embodied state. It's physical. It's emotional. It's intellectual. I know that for me, if I were grounded, centered, and in present time all the time, that would be really fabulous. When we're dysregulated, we're the opposite of that. We can look anxious. We can look dissociated, overwhelmed, confused, depressed. So really, dysregulation is a state of not feeling in the flow, so to speak, on a nervous system level. It's a state of being stuck in sympathetic arousal or a shutdown. And when we are self-regulated, there's a feeling that we can, we can go with the ebb and flow of life. We can handle difficulty and then recover from it. Self-regulation is one aspect of resilience. I'm wondering if you could take the two terms, dysregulated and self-regulated, and rewrite the title of your book. So the title is Peace from Anxiety. In a sense, is the book also about self-regulation from dysregulation? Absolutely. I think we could say that it would be even a moving from from dysregulation towards self-regulation. So that that brings me to a question about the title and, and the use, and this sounds nitpicky, but the use of the word from. So the way you just said it and the way I sort of set it up was you're moving from A to B. Mm-hmm. But another way to read the title, and I got this idea from the book, though I don't know if you intended it or not, but mm-hmm. peace from anxiety, like anxiety isn't the problem you found peace from it not not mm-hmm. not to escape it but anxiety is the mm-hmm. grist for the mill that makes peace is that does that make sense i love that i actually did not think about the title that deeply but you're spot on right that anxiety can be the doorway into peace that it can be That's... alerting us to something signifying something and that when we're trying to get away from our anxiety, we get away from the source of our peace. 
Oh, so that's really interesting. So, I mean, that's, I don't want to put words. In your yeah, mouth, yeah, but you got it spot on. But when I thought of, you know, peace from anxiety or, or flipping it around, escaping from anxiety to find peace, I kept thinking that anxiety is just sort of part of reality. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily, it's just the way you said about what you said about trauma and traumatized. Mm-hmm. You can you can experience anxiety without becoming hyper anxious. So my sense of from the book is that anxiety is a given and you can work with it rather than flee from it in order to create a sense of peace. Absolutely. And I think part of feeling that peace is not being afraid of difficulty or anxiety or things not being perfect. And when we feel like we can handle that, we can be at peace. Peace doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean being free from suffering, but being in relationship to our suffering. So when you grew up with the trauma that you did, I mean, you were three years old when you were there, but I imagine that your parents, I don't know if they were traumatized, but they they certainly had a deeper sense of the trauma being adults. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if they carried that over and you picked it up in a way that other people might not. So like you're saying, you know, for some people, it's easier to surrender than others. Given your background, was it more or less difficult, do you think? Well, it's hard, it's hard to say because I, you know, I only know my own experience, um, but I know that I went into the role of the helper right away. So I think that I felt and saw my parents' pain and they both expressed it in different ways. And I just played the role of helper, which, you know, very much is the foundations of my entire career. <laughs> um, but you're talking about as a kid. Yeah, as a kid. I mean, you know, obviously when I was really young, that was not my role. But, as you know, as I started to get to know myself and explore my myself in the world, being the helper and the fixer and the mediator, I dealt with their trauma and my anxiety about their trauma by trying to fix them. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was reading the book, I was thinking about the psychology of children of Holocaust survivors, or, and I guess you could extrapolate just children of of parents who have been through tremendous trauma. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, I think, take on that helper role as a way of not just helping their parents, but finding a, a place for themselves in the world that makes sense, given the the trauma that they carry. But you have a I don't know, an interesting approach to life that you're, you're right about in the book. I'm just going to quote you to yourself. Mm-hmm. You say, at my core, I'm an optimist. I believe that people are inherently good and that we all ultimately want to feel safe, connected, loved, and happy. So first of all, do you still believe that? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Okay. I don't, I don't want to go into it if you said no. I mean, book this, came book, out and this book was written pre-COVID, and for sure, sometimes that sentiment has been challenged, but yeah. yeah that, that's true. That's true. So, I mean, you and I differ on this. I, I'm not an optimist. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know what I am, but I'm not an optimist, and I don't believe people are inherently good. I guess mm. I think people are born innocent, and then over time, we end up, you know, on one end of the spectrum or another. Um, but... I do think you're right that people ultimately want to feel safe, connected, loved, and happy. If we are correct about that, why do you think that there are so many millions of people who want to deny millions of other people 
the opportunity to feel safe, connected, loved, and happy. What? Where's the disconnect? Oh boy, where to begin? Where to begin? I think that there is a trauma that is a collective trauma that sometimes I call dominator culture, a culture that ranks human worth, a culture that ranks our proximity to resources, not just the resources we need to survive, but resources like safety, dignity, and respect. I think it's rooted in a long history of that, and especially capitalism, imperialism, colonization, and that those traumas live collectively and globally in our bodies in such a way that we are self-perpetuating them. We don't need a colonizer to come and colonize us because our minds and our bodies have been colonized. And I think that collectively as a planet, we have to detoxify from this idea that human worth is ranked, that we are separate from nature. And that's the collective trauma we're all grappling with. And I think everybody is suffering, even those who are quote unquote winning, those who are having access to the resources. There's a term that's called um, perpetrator-induced PTSD. It's usually used with veterans. The idea that what we do to harm others harms us. And so whether we're perpetrating these or we are being victimized by them, and for many people, with somewhere in between, we're inadvertently perpetrating the oppression of other people. It costs us our humanity. And I think everybody wants to be rehumanized at their core. Yeah, I think I think that's true about the individual, that everybody wants to be rehumanized at you know, at their core, but they don't necessarily want to allow others to be humanized or to even allow mm-hmm. themselves to humanize others. I mean, I'm right now, and, and I try to keep these conversations, current events free <laughs> so <laughs> that they can be listened to whenever. But, you know, we're dealing with the trial of the former police officer, Colvin, who, you know, murdered, my, in my estimation, mm-hmm. uh, George Floyd. Absolutely. When I look at the video of him doing that, and he looks directly into the camera, and he looks dead. Not George. I mean, mm-hmm. this guy. He he looks spiritually dead. His eyes look dead. It looks like he suffers from overwhelming sense of nihilism, that nothing matters, and he's just doing this. And he doesn't... Mm-hmm. It's not that he wants him dead. It's that he doesn't not want him dead. You know, mm-hmm. it's just... I don't know how to explain it exactly. But if that's true, let's just assume for argument's sake that that, that's true. This notion of everybody wants to feel safe, connected, loved, and happy. When you look at someone like that former police officer, or you look at some of the people storming the Capitol on January 6th, they don't look safe, connected, Mm -hmm. loved, or happy. They suffer, I love this term, you can probably say it again because I'm not going to remember exactly, perpetrator-induced PTSD, Mm -hmm. right? right? They look like victims of that. Now, I don't want to excuse their behavior at all. That's not what I mean. But but the the perpetrator-induced PTSD seems to be a soul-sucking, life-killing disease that lots and millions and millions of people suffer from. Maybe everyone, if you're looking at the way you talked a moment ago about our disconnect with the planet and what we're doing to the planet, mm-hmm. we're perpetrating you know, yeah. extinction yeah. Uh, on the planet. So maybe all of us suffer from one extent to another, but there, there are millions of, and I'm just looking at Americans at the moment, but millions of Americans who suffer from this 
because of the way they're raised, I think, because of what they're taught about other people. Are you, do you see this in, in your experience as well? Yeah. And I think, I mean, you just said a lot there, right? I think yeah, that I looking <laughs> at looking at white supremacy and racism, right, in particular, right, that, you know, even white people are harmed by that uh, because it costs them their humanity, right? So that that murderer, that police officer who murdered George Floyd, like, and again, I don't know, you know, that person might be suffer from a mental illness in addition to, you know, internalized racism and structural racism that upholds and gives power and allows that to happen. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. But I think that like focusing on the individual, like I would say also that that person has lost his humanity, right? Like to be capable of doing what he did. He has lost his humanity. Now, if that person had been nurtured and loved and told that everybody was equal, right, his soul would be full and he wouldn't need to do that, right? So we harm people when we feel less than. Uh, We need them to be less than us so that we feel important, right? That's what supremacy culture says, right? I need you to be beneath me so I can feel above you. So yeah, I mean, sure. Was that child, that officer when he was born, uh, you know, innocent to use your words? Yes. And do we get corrupted? And especially when we're held in positions of power and affirmed for that corruption, like that, you know, white male officer was. But I think that white males suffer their own humanity as well because these systems perpetuate that in them. Okay. So, so but, and, and I'm sure you don't mean this, but that in no way excuses anybody's behavior. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely right. not. But if I were to dehumanize him, right, he, I can hold him culpable and still see his humanity. I don't need to dehumanize him to hold him culpable. And if things are ever gonna change, I need to ask myself, what trauma caused this officer to do that? If I don't ask that question, then the source of the problem will never never get addressed. We will just be constantly putting Band-Aids over it. Right, we'll, we'll take care of the symptom or the perpetrator of the symptom and, and never get to the root cause. Yeah which has got to be huge because it's going to mean a different kind of, you have to, it's a revolution in the entire social structure. Absolutely. A restorative justice process, you know, which is work that folks are doing to try to, to, you know, to make justice about healing, not just, um, you know, retribution. Yeah. And that still works on a societal level. I think that, that we also need work on the individual level that, I mean, I just, again, I'm just going to go back to the same image of, of the Capitol in, in, on January 6th. These people were, I mean, they'd lost their minds, many of them. Mm-hmm. They'd lost their humanity in the mob, which is part of what happens in mobs. Mm-hmm. But that could not have happened to them because it didn't happen to everybody who went to the rally. It could not have happened to them if they weren't damaged. And I, I'm going to, I don't know if you would agree with this, but damaged maybe beyond repair. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the key would be to see if they have children and what damage they've done to them, and maybe you know they can experience peace from anxiety. But I don't know about these these adults. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm just speculating here, but 
Yeah. And I think that there were like different groups at the Capitol. There were the folks who, you know, who were there and didn't realize it was happening. There were the folks who were there and didn't mean to be violent. And then there were the folks who came and meant to, to cause harm and really do violence. Right. And I think those are the ones you're talking about. And you know, again, I think this phenomena, you know, this, the Trump phenomena in the United States, you know, is, you know, was, a, is again, a symptom of, you know, I do believe that we're moving away from domination towards a potential to have more of a collective culture. And I think those who benefit from that domination, white people specifically, and white people with trauma, with lack of education, who've been told that their rights are going to be taken away and who've bought into this, those are the folks, that trauma, the trauma of being told you're going to be losing your power is scaring them. And so I think that this, this rise, even though it's so horrible, but Trump revealed the depths of the work America has to do, the United States has to do. I'm not going to call us America because the Americas are broad of, of, of dealing with our, you know, our collective childhood trauma of slavery and genocide. But I do think on an optimistic day, I do think that all of these awful things are actually potentially proof that things are changing. You know, it happens in our psyche. We want to change our behavior. What happens? All our old addictions come up stronger, right? You say, you know what? I'm going to start exercising every day. What happens? You don't want to do it, right? I'm going to change this behavior. So when change happens, the shadow emerges stronger. And I like to believe that the collective shadow of the United States has emerged with a vengeance precisely because it's feeling threatened, precisely because we are moving towards more of a diverse um, representation, a diversity of power. And folks feel threatened by it, and they should. So I love your optimism. <laughs> I look at it. I look at it and say, "Oh, it's the Kali Yuga. Everything is going to collapse. It's mm. it's over." No, I, I really do. It love ha- your but optimism. it does have to collapse. Like we have to have chaos. Change is not going to happen smoothly. Right, right. Change is not going to happen in in any form that most of us are looking forward to. It's always yeah. dragging us into the future. Yeah. You know, you're right in the book. Um, there's just, again, a little phrase you have to quote, mm-hmm. we cannot be well on our own, close quote. And I'm just wondering, just to change, shift gears for a second, if we're, since we're talking topical, uh, given COVID-19, I mean, the vaccine is, is out, many people are vaccinated, but mm-hmm. the, and the lockdowns are lessening, but there could be more lockdowns if uh, variants, you know, take over again. Uh, and even with the vaccine, we're supposed to continue wearing masks and continue social distancing. Yeah. How, 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 what are you noticing in the people that you work with, or how can we begin to maintain our sense of connection when we live in this pandemically induced isolation? Yeah, it's a great question. I've been trying to say to folks, it's physical distancing, it's not social distancing. And how do we make sure? I mean, we have this amazing thing called the internet, right? And how can we utilize technology, safe ways to stay connected? And I think absolutely, I mean, this pandemic is causing an exacerbation of mental health crises for folks who already feel isolated. Um, and we need that connection. And, and I've been really trying to support the people I'm working with to notice when are we in a freeze response and when are we being safe, right? 
I mean, you could go outside and wear a mask and stand six feet away from somebody and be safe. But oftentimes we're afraid of even doing those things because we're in this collective freeze together. So I think, you know, it's normal response. Um, And I think people have been getting creative, finding ways to connect online. But definitely, I think everybody's world has shrunk tremendously. And it is, it is, it's, it's really overwhelming. There's no way around it. You know, I know you wrote the book before COVID-19, but it seems to me that the advice in the book is perfectly suited or maybe mm-hmm. suited for this, for this time. I'm Absolutely. not saying. And, and, and COVID hit like before I finished the book. So it's like, it's in, I, 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 there's some statistic in there. And I, it was like, you know, we thought so many people had died at that point, you know? So for sure, the book I think um, was meant for this time. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that doesn't mean you had anything to do with spreading COVID, but... No, it was not a marketing ploy. It's not a marketing (laughs) ploy. Okay. Listen, we are running up against the end of the, you know, our time, but I have one question. It's only huge, so (laughs) you can do what you want with it. But uh, one of your concerns regarding connection extends beyond people. And you say that we need to connect to something bigger, and bigger has a capital B. And I'm curious if you meant it could be all of the above nature, but I'm also, you know, it's spirituality and health. I, I'm interested in what your sense of bigger is and if it's uh, all influenced by your upbringing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think bigger has different meanings for people. And I was raised Catholic and definitely in my youth, Catholicism and the church would, felt like that bigger thing for me. When I was confused, I would ask myself, what would Jesus do? You know? <laughs> Um, that didn't last so long because then I started to want to do things Jesus definitely would not want to do. And I had to like revise my, um, my vision of the world. But I think that we all have different expressions for that. And for me, religion was not that for me. Um, it, it found its limits in my world. And then I explored, you know, yoga and even Hinduism and it dabbled in other religions and finally just decided, you know, all of that was beautiful. I was a religion minor in college, actually. So I'm very fascinated by different religions. But for me, it really is something mysterious. I don't have words for it. It's not connected to organized religion. And that my sense of spirituality is is connected more to nature, something mysterious, something ineffable. And I do share in the book about how I even threw that out for a while. I felt like I was using all this spiritual talk to bypass my emotions, to just not have to feel And so for a while, I was a hardcore, you know, atheist. I didn't believe in anything that was bigger than just my reality. And that was very anxiety provoking, (laughs) anxiety producing, because I didn't allow myself this larger container. And so I had to broaden my view and remember that this larger container can be beloved community, nature. I can experience that magic and that ineffable without having a dogmatic belief system. So that's what it really is for me. Very good. So... Of course, I'm really curious to find out what it is you wanted to do that Jesus wouldn't do. But <laughs> That's for I'm another podcast. I'm out of, yeah, I'm out of time. I'm just going to assume it was having something to do with eating pork. Because <laughs> Jesus <laughs> exactly. wasn't going to do that. <laughs> so our guest today, Hala Kuri, is the author of Peace from Anxiety. Get grounded, build resilience, and stay connected amidst the chaos. Her essay, Right Now We're All Dysregulated, appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about her work on her website, halakuri.com. Halakuri, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. 
It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, Don't take your dreams lying down.